<laughs> Welcome, you guys. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matt Johnson. I'm the youth pastor here, and um, I actually have the privilege of putting those videos together, and um, we are putting on a human trafficking conference at the end of this month. And um, Phil Lockwood, if you don't know who he is, um, he's a discipleship pastor here. And I've uh, just been working with him and planning through a lot of videos uh, for this event. And it's, it's going to be an incredible event. Uh, we're working with uh, several police departments in the area, several law enforcement groups and, and agencies that, um, that oversee these, um, these things and, and a lot of uh, organizations that we're going to be working with. And um, I, I, fo- I, I took some footage of um, I-80 over at Kidwell. And you guys know Kidwell as the the exit that you take when coming to Dixon is all backed up. And uh, so I was up there with my camera, and I was just, um, I was just filming uh, these cars going by, filming the traffic, and it just, um, I just had this moment where I just kind of like broke down when I was filming it um, because I was just thinking through these stats, and I was thinking through um, the amount of people that, that are trafficked uh, down the I-80 corridor. And I was, it just hit me like I, I'm filming these lights coming and, and I wonder if any of these lights are adding to the statistic. And um, there were several times when I was uh, putting the video announcements together this week where I just, I just broke down and just had to cry through it because it was, it, it just, when you see those numbers, when, when, you, when you begin to, to realize every single one of those individuals amongst millions, amongst billions, um, it's, it's just, it's not okay. And I'm so, I'm so thankful that our church is, is doing something about it. Um, so I, I really want to hit, if, if, if you want to attend or if you want to serve at that event, it is going to be um, really an unprecedented event in this area. Uh, and and I, really, I really hope that you do that. Um, and, and just as we're talking about children um, in, in, in trafficking, I'm, I'm actually going to be talking about children this morning. Um, and, and, and not in that way. I'm going to be talking about something different. Um, who's ever heard the phrase children of God or child of God? I think just about all of us uh, have, have heard that at some point, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, uh, if you can put it up there, I'm going to be asking three questions. Who are children of God? What are children of God? And why does that matter? I feel like this is one of those phrases that you can toss out and not carry uh, any gravity or any depth or any, any facts to it, actually. I feel like we can toss this phrase out as something that's kind of flowery and romantic and something that you'd put on a plaque next to Jeremiah 2911. You know, and, and, and you can, this is a phrase that can just not carry any depth. Or it can be a phrase that carries a life-changing, revolutionary amount of depth to it. And, and that's what I, what I, what I hope to bring to you this morning is the scriptural basis for who the children of God are, what are they, and hopefully that will tell you why it matters. Uh, Last week, uh, Jeff walked us through uh, Revelations 7 and 8, and in that he talked a little bit about those who would be sealed, and he talked a little bit about the covenant of Abraham and God's children, and I encourage you to go back to that podcast. You can go to our website, livinghopedixon.com, go to podcasts. And you can listen to that sermon, and that'll bring a little bit more. But I'm actually going to sum up a little bit of the covenant. But if you want to turn over to Romans chapter 4, if you have your Bible, uh, while you're doing that, I'm going to sum up a little bit of, of things that will help us through um, Abraham's uh, covenant and, and his descendants and Father Abraham and all that good stuff. So I'm going to pray while you guys are turning. Don't feel weird about that. <laughs> I'm going to pray. Um, Father, I thank you so much for your word to us this morning. I thank you that you are a good God. God, I, I am nothing, and you are something, and, and I just uh, pray that you would 
break the laws of physics and make something out of nothing. Uh, God, would you just, Holy Spirit, speak through me as a vessel and nothing more. God, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to get to Romans 4 in just a second, but just to sum up, in Genesis chapter 17, God gives Abraham the covenant. Uh, it tells him that, that you will be the father of many nations in verse 4. And this is actually the third time that he speaks to him of the covenant. He also speaks to him in chapters 12 and 15. If you're a note taker and you want to go back and read that later, uh, mark that down. Uh, Genesis chapters 12 and 15. But in 17, he says that you will be the father of many nations in verse 4. And in verse 7, he says that I will be your God and the God of the descendants after you. I will be your God and the God of the descendants after you. And so in this covenant, he says, I am going to make a a great nation out of you, Abraham. Actually, many nations out of you. Out of your descendants, the world will be blessed. I will bless those who you bless. I will curse those who you curse. And actually, out of this covenant comes Jesus Christ. That through the lineage, through the promised land, through all of this stuff, comes the right place and the right time for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so this is really a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ and his people. And so what we're going to see is that Abraham's children, who we are, that Romans 4 and A actually make a case for, is not the direct lineage of Abraham. How many of you guys have ever heard the song, Father Abraham? Any, any one of those kids in kids' church knows about Father Abraham with the head, you know, wagging and the arms flailing? I really debated whether or not to do that and have you guys do that this morning. I decided against it just because I thought that might be a little hokey. But speaking of hokey, I am wearing my Rainbow Dash socks this morning. I got my Sunday best on, so this is how we do it. Uh, Romans chapter 4, I'm going to turn there, and we're going to get into uh, a bit of the scripture here. Oh, by the way, uh, normally we have a wireless handheld, and so this is a plug for the tech team. Hopefully we get that thing working. I got my iPad up here. I got my Bible up here. I got my wireless headphone up here. And so if you see me struggling up here, don't feel bad for me. This is just a plug for the tech team. Hopefully we get that wireless head, headset going. Uh, Romans 4.16, uh, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his uh, offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through righteousness it comes by faith. For it is those who live... By the law are heirs. Faith has no value and the promise is worthless. Because law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no, no transgression. Verse 16, therefore, this I think is the scripture that's up there. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace. It may be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written. I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as they were. By the way, if you're wondering if, if I just have a hard time reading, there's a couple of words that aren't going to line up because I have the old school NIV 84 right here and the NIV that you get off the web is the new edition. So if there's little words there, I apologize for you people. Uh, so it says in there, uh, again, it, it brings back up that verse in Genesis 17 that he will be the father of many nations. But he says that those who are the descendants of Abraham are those who live by faith. So who is this guy Abraham and who are his children? Well, Abraham, we really don't know a whole lot about him before God called him. Like, we know where he lived. We knew a little bit about his family. And, and we actually see several stories of him. And we kind of see whether he was or wasn't a man of integrity. We see that he was a flawed man, just like all of us. He sinned, just like all of us. But who was this guy? 
Well, the Bible tells us over and over again of his great faith. So maybe this is why God calls him, because he's a man of great faith. And it says here that his descendants are those who live by faith. That his, his children are not his direct bloodline posterity, but those who live by faith. In Romans 8, if you want to turn just a little bit to the right, uh, we're going to begin in verse 14 here. Romans 8, 14. It goes on to say that because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received a spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if we indeed share in his sufferings, interesting, in order that we may also share in his glory. So if you read through Romans 4, you might say, so this guy Abraham is our father. That's kind of weird because he's not. (laughs) And and this is this this thing that the, the Bible calls Abraham to have his nation to be set apart from the other nations around him. If you guys know any of the history around that time, that when God called Abraham to be a man of great faith and his descendants to be men and women of great faith, that they would be called, they would be set, af- uh, set apart, they would be sanctified, they would be consecrated. They were the ones that were given the law. They were the ones that were given uh, the, the covenant of circumcision as a symbol. Now, nothing more, of being set apart. This was this whole concept of being a nation set apart from the ways of the world, the, the religions of the world, the thinking of the world, the action of the world around the nation of Israel were people who worshipped sex, who worshipped false gods, who, who murdered. Who, th- this is where all of these things come from. And so this is where God is saying, we are going to take a people And we're going to set them apart from all that stuff, all that garbage. And we are going to make a new people. These people are going to stand out. They're going to be set apart. And these people are the foreshadowing of us. That we are called to stand out. That we are called to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be sanctified. And as Romans uh, says, to be be circumcised of of the heart. He, Paul says in Romans, it says that circumcision is nothing unless it's circumcision of the heart. That if, if inside of us that we haven't been changed, that it means nothing. And so this foreshadowing, which the Bible, I, I love that there's so much foreshadowing. I mean, the Passover in, in, in Exodus and, and, and the law, just, just so many things that, that foreshadow to something new. God is always taking something, making it new. And I love it. So Abraham's descendants, it's a foreshadow for us. A nation surrounded by evil, surrounded by temptation, surrounded by idols, surrounded by all these cultures of influence, and yet to be set apart. So how are they set apart? That first, that first point, the children of God are those who live by faith, as Abraham did. The Bible calls him a man of great faith. And in Romans 8.14 says that, with the Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. 
First off, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. How do we have the Holy Spirit? Through receiving Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Receiving that, and the Holy Spirit comes in us. How do we get that? Through faith. Through faith. Everything is through faith. But this, this funny phrase here, Abba, Father, that's kind of weird. If you don't know what that is, that's, that's in the area where the Bible is written. It's their dada. Dada. When, when a child says their first word, it's like this proud, beautiful moment for a parent. Like, what was your child's first word? And there may be a little fun competition about what does your baby say more, dada or mama, or, you know, there, that might exist. But the Bible says that that's who we call out to God with. Through the Spirit. Think about that. Through the Spirit of sanctification. Through the Spirit of power, as it says in Acts 1. Through the, the, through the Spirit of holiness. We cry out, Dada. I think that that's really beautiful because we want to come to God out of reverence. We want to, you know, like what we said uh, several times, Jeff, the last two weeks had us pray, conclude the service with, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And it's this beautiful portrayal. It's this reverent coming to the Holy Father, the Father of heavenly lights. And, And it's this just beautifully written. I mean, Jesus wrote it, so you know it's beautiful. But it's just this reverent prayer. But... It says here in in Romans 8 that through that Holy Spirit, Spirit of power, we cry out, Dada. Dada. In 2 Corinthians 6.18, it says, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. This is this amazing truth. As, again, as we read through the Our Father prayer, as it's called in, in Matthew 6. This, this beautiful phrase, that says, Our Father. Not the Father. This is something that's very interesting that I find, that, that in Scripture, that we find that God is not just the Father. He's our Father. And likewise, what we're just about to find out is that we are not just His children, but we need to be like children. He's not just the Father. He's our Father. We're not just His children. We need to be like children. Go to Matthew 18 if you have your Bibles. Uh, the Scripture is also going to be up there. Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 through 4. And this is, this is just such a, I think, just a, a pillar in Scripture. It's certainly a pillar in this message. Uh, it, I, I think that when it comes to our attitude, when it comes to the way that we come to God in prayer, the way that we live our lives, I feel like these five verses should speak volumes to the way that we carry about our life. So his apostles, teenagers, young adults, often asking very silly questions. And I said it in first service that I'm, I'm always blown away by the questions that our teenagers ask. I mean, it's, it, they ask incredible questions. I mean, they, they ask some incredibly mature questions. Jesus' apostles, I, I feel like my, my teens would be one-upping Jesus' apostles, so I feel like that's, you know, you know, that's on you guys. That's not on me. It says this, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? God, maybe? God? You think God? Yeah, probably God. Okay, that's probably the answer, guys. Uh, in verse 2, he called a little child to him and placed... The child among them. I love that. 
And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change, that's important, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. The disciples asked this question. His apostles asked this question. His, his closest people asked this question. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? God's like, you got to get there first, dude. you got to get to heaven first before you ask these questions. You're concerned about who's going to be greatest in heaven? Let's focus on getting there first, all right? Unless you change and become like little children, you're not getting there to begin with. Don't ask about who's going to be the greatest in heaven. Let's talk about getting there first. Unless you change and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's kind of important. Because I feel like a lot of this Christian walk sort of is centered around getting to heaven. I feel like that's part of it. Like, at least a little part of it. Like, there's a benefit to being a Christian, and it's called heaven. It's called everlasting life. And so I feel like there's an element there that we need to understand. Jesus says, you're not going to get to heaven unless fill in the blank. I feel like that's important. And he says this, unless you change, repent, change, turn around, 180, flip around, and become like little children. And I love that. He takes this small child and places the child among them as if to say, come on, let's go. You think you're all high and mighty? Small little child. standing there. Doesn't even know what I'm talking about. Just look at the small child. So what does this mean? We've got to become like little children. I feel like you can get a lot of things out of this. I feel like, uh, unless there's some scriptural guidance here, we can draw up all sorts of conclusions that would not be true about what would be little children. I hear some people talking about how much they love children because X, Y, Z. So if we apply that X, Y, Z to this scripture, that's how we're going to enter heaven. I want to nail a couple of those things down and say no. So let's get a couple of these. Uh, I, I hear a lot of times that, well, I love children because they're so innocent. They're, they're, they're kind of, you know, ignorance is bliss. They haven't seen a lot of the things in this world. Uh, they're just, they're, they're innocent. They really haven't done anything that wrong yet. They're just so pure. So parents in the room, why don't you raise your hand so that we all get an idea of how many parents we got in here. All right. So us who are not parents, let's look to them real quick. Parents, how innocent are your children? Yeah. Not innocent at all, right? Come on. As soon as a child can breathe, they're conspiring to get the cookie before dinner. That's who children are. We are hardwired for evil. It's kind of crazy. In fact, the scripture testifies about that. Psalm 51.5. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He says, the moment I walked into this world. No, 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 no. The moment I was conceived... I was sinful. We walk into this world with the curse of sin in our blood. God created us perfect. Sin entered the world. And like a computer virus just got inside and corrupted all the files. Just everything just got screwed up. Everything's all hardwired. And sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes you can get to where you want to be. And sometimes it just crashes. And sometimes it just slow. It was just, we just get screwed up. We're not innocent. Little children aren't innocent. 
next. Humble. I've heard this, that, that little children are humble. You know, it, it, I just, I don't know. I, no. No, they're not. You go to any playground and all you hear is, look at me, look at me, look at me. And as soon as you, they find out that you can say something that's funny, right, over and over and over and over again. Child says, poo-poo. And you go, I said, poo-poo. All day long, poo-poo. Poo-poo. And you're just like, oh, great, we're going to hear this all day long. You just hope that they don't say that at the dinner party or whatever you're going. You're just like, oh, no. As soon as your child catches on to something that they think is funny or they know that you think it's funny, it's just over. It's over. They're, they're, they're not humble. They want attention. They're, they're, they're little attention machines. I've heard this one. Well, children are just carefree. They're just happy all the time, and, and they, they, you know, they're not really concerned about the ways of the world. And I feel like there's a little bit of truth to that, but also that's just incredibly wrong. They're not carefree, and any parent that has ever given their child, like, a bath, right, you got all your bath toys out, and they ask for the ducky, and you give them the rubber ducky, and they just start screaming for no reason, like, whoa, 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 I gave you the ducky, what happened? And they said, I wanted the blue ducky, and you gave them the yellow ducky, and you're like the worst parent in the world because you gave them the wrong color ducky. How dare you? How dare you give them the wrong ducky? And their just day is ruined because they're just freaking out over the stupidest thing. I, there's this thread online, and, and, and it's, it's something that the title is actually something I can't really repeat. Um, but it's just a series of photos of kids just freaking out. And under the caption, it says, like, the reason why they're freaking out. And it's always things like, parent gave them the wrong colored rubber ducky. Or wanted to get ice cream, gave them the right flavored ice cream. But at the last moment, they wanted vanilla. So they're just, like, screaming and just, like, throwing it on the ground. Like, that's what children do. So, no, they're not carefree. They're, they're obsessed with everything. Uh, and last, I, I've heard that children are just honest. You know, they just say the truth. I don't even have to say anything. I feel like that just sums it up right there. No, children are not honest. Uh, As soon as they come to this world, they're conspiring to get to the cookie, and they're going to get their accomplices involved. They're going to get their brothers and sisters involved. And as soon as they find out that trouble is coming, they shift the blame to their accomplice. That's the nice thing about having siblings is that you can always just push the blame, right? So, no, they're they're, they're not honest. They're not humble. They're not innocent, and they're not carefree. They're certainly not. Uh, So what are children? What are little children? And, And if we need to change and become like little children, what are the attributes that are most important? I'm going to put two up there that I feel like scripturally completely line up. First one is they need to trust completely. Kids need to trust completely in their parents. A father, a mother, is concerned about bringing the bread home on the table. A child is not. They're not worried about how the bread's going to get on the table. They belly up to the table and eat the bread. They trust that it's going to be there. They trust that the parents are going to provide. They trust that when the parents say that the boogeyman's not under the bed, that the boogeyman's not under the bed. It doesn't always work, but they need to trust that. Parents need to trust complete, or, or, or kids need to trust completely in their parents. And this is this crazy thing is in the same way that we're corrupt and hardwired by sin, Children are correctly hardwired to trust. They don't need to worry about how the house is going to be maintained and how the food is going to get there and how the tax forms are going to get filed correctly and all that stuff. Small child is worried about their small little life. They trust their parents for that. Second on this is that they're dependent Children are completely dependent. We need to be dependent on God. 
We need to trust God completely, which is faith, really. We need to trust God completely, and we need to be completely dependent on God. This is this kind of crazy thing when it comes down to the way that we view God as our Father and us as little children. Just take a moment, try and go back to a time when you were a small child, like three, four, five years old. Think about your responsibilities. Think about what you had to do. Think about what you cared about. Some of you might even have a hard time remembering back to that. Because I can guarantee you probably didn't have that much responsibility. Usually when we have a lot to do and stress out, we can remember that time. That's the attitude that we need to have towards God. We need to just have that trust, that belief that he's going to come through, that he's our defender, that he's our identity, that he is going to take care of us. Matthew 6, I think, is, is the best illustration of this. And if you, if you didn't even grow up in church, you've probably heard this before. Uh, it, it's kind of up there with, like, the 1 Corinthians 13 uh, and the Jeremiah 29.11 and, and, and a lot of other scripture that, that gets tossed around a lot. And, and I re- think the reason why it gets tossed around a lot is because it's so good. I think it's just so good. We're going to be Matthew 6, uh, Matthew 6, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon, the richest king that ever was, in all of his splendor, was dressed like one of these. And that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we wear? What shall we drink? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That's important. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about your life, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. This is one of my favorite analogies, one of my favorite visuals in all of Scripture. He says this, Look at the birds. Look at the grass. At my house, we have a bird feeder. We have a bird bath. We have a lawn. We take care of those things. Every once in a while, we'll go clean out the bird bath. Every once in a while, we've got to go out there and put some seed in the bird feeder. Every once in a while, depending on the season, we've got to go out there and mow the lawn. So it takes some work. But here's the crazy thing. If one day we stopped filling the bird feeder up with seeds, and we stopped filling up the bird bath with water, and we stopped mowing the lawn, what would happen? Would the birds just spontaneously explode and just fall down to ash on the earth? Would the grass just wither away? No. The grass would keep growing, and then it would create seeds, and then those seeds would go into the ground, and it would create more grass, and the birds would keep on going. They'd go wherever they need to go to find seed, wherever they need to go to find water. If we stopped caring for the birds and the grass at my house, nothing would happen. They would go and have food. They would go and have water, and the grass would keep growing. And this is what's incredible about the Scripture. He's like, Look at the grass. 
God loves it. God made it. God created it, and it sustains itself. The cells in the grass don't wake up in the morning and go, all right, how are we going to make chlorophyll this morning? I don't know how we're going to do it. No, the grass just grows. God created it to grow, and God gives it life. God creates and, and, and has the, the ecosystems and the biomes, everything in, in, in this earth to be in balance so that everything would continue to go on. God created that, and he holds it together. The Bible's like, look at the grass and look at how much God loves you. Look at the birds and see how much God loves you. If he takes care of that stuff, which today is here and just thrown in the fire, he will take care of you. He will provide for you. He will look after you. This is an incredible view of our Father, that he cares for us. He provides for us. And not only that, he gives us creation to go look at and see as evidences of his love for us. That we can look out at the simple, simple things in his creation, like grass, and say, wow, man, he's going to take care of me. He's going to take care of me. This aspect of God being our father is so much more, you guys, than, than us titling him, ascribing to him a certain name. Us as children being of a certain name, a certain category or, or whatever, putting something flowery and, and, and fun and, and, and kind of romantic on it. For us to be little children in light of a perfect father can revolutionize your life. It can change the way that not only you think, that you pray, that you act, that you work, that you live. Do you believe that God is your father? Not just the father, but, I mean, your dad? Your dada? The spirit of power which is within us cries out, dada. Go to Hebrews 12 if you have your Bibles. I want to look at one more aspect of how God is our father. So if God is our dad... Dads have certain roles. Dads have certain responsibilities. For the dads in the room, you look at your children and, 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 and hope that you are raising them correctly. Now, because this aspect that we are flawed, this aspect that, that we are sinners, this aspect that, that, that we, we can't do the best to the point of perfection, but we can do the best to our ability. And we're going to look at this in Hebrews 12. We're going to start in verse 7. It says this, funny scripture. Endure hardship as discipline. All right. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and every child does go under discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, We have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
Fathers have a role to discipline their children, to bring them up, to teach them, to rebuke them, not just to punish them when they do something wrong, but to discipline them. This is actually a big difference between punish and discipline. That punishment, you are applying a, a circumstance to match a circumstance. You did something wrong, so I'm taking something away. You did something wrong, so I'm doing something to you. And that's not wrong. That's right. But if it's not paired with discipline, it's wrong. Because if it's only punishment, there's never growth. There's never training. There's never building up. We need to be disciplined. That word discipline has many connotations, right? If you say someone is a man of discipline, what do you know about them? That they have integrity. That they say what they're going to do and they do what they're going to say. That they're, that they're devoted. That they're committed. That's someone of discipline. So fathers have a role to discipline their children. This is what's incredibly beautiful about this passage. Because we look at not only our role as parents. That it's not just you did something wrong so I need to do something to you. But this aspect that we actually have responsibility to discipline, to train up, to equip, to build up, to give why we are punishing, to tell why we are doing these things. Why? Because that's what God does for us. That when we endure hardship as discipline, that when we receive his rebuke as discipline, it's not, oh, God's coming down on me with his big thumb or his big God-sized magnifying glass and is just burning up my life. But he's actually building you up as discipline. Over and over again, the Bible says that when you receive that discipline, it builds character. If you never disciplined your child not once, what kind of character would they be? They'd be some kind of character. They wouldn't have character. They'd be some kind of character, that's for sure. I'm thankful that actually my parents are all here today and, and they, they've definitely done some disciplining for me and I'm thankful for them. And uh, I'm not going to call them out because I don't want to embarrass you. But I, I just, I see this as a beautiful portrayal of who God is for us. God's not a genie. God's not a win-all-the-time slot machine. He's not this little buddy that every once in a while you call on to get a little blessing. He's your dad. He's your dada. He will discipline you. And not just punish you, but bring you discipline to build you up. I think all of us, and I'll just use really lame terminology... Want to be better people. I don't think there's anyone in the room that's just like, I want to be worse tomorrow. I want to wake up tomorrow and be a worse person. I want to be worse to my neighbors. I want to be worse to my family. I want to be worse at my job. I want to just be a worse person tomorrow. I don't think that's anyone's attitude intentionally. I think we all want to be better. In order to be better, we need to be disciplined. We need to be brought up. We need to be trained. We need to be equipped. Now, this beautiful aspect here in this verse says that our fathers disciplined us in what they thought was best. That's what that scripture says. They disciplined us in what they thought was best because that's their job. But God disciplines perfectly. Bullseye. Right down the middle. That's what God does. He disciplines perfectly. 
because he knows your wholeness. He knows your whole life. Everything that you've done, are doing, will do, or will not do. He knows it all. So he can discipline you accordingly and perfectly. So we are his children. We need to receive the hand of discipline. We need to receive the hand of provision. We need to receive his, his hand of love. Right now we're teaching through Exodus at Interstate 180, our junior high and high school youth ministry on Tuesday nights. And uh, a couple of weeks ago I had the, uh, the honor of teaching out of uh, Exodus chapter 6, Exodus chapter 5. And it's the story of Moses going before Pharaoh. You've probably heard this one before. Pharaoh, let my people go. And in, in Moses' call, there's this beautiful thing that God does. He says, all right, Moses, here's what you're going to do. All right, you ready? You're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to tell him, let my people go. But he's not going to let my people go. But hey, 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 but there's more. There's more. There's more. All right, ready? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him, let my people go. But he's not going to let my people go. Over and over again, he tells this to Moses. He's like, I'm calling you. Who gave man his mouth? I don't care what you think about how good you are as a speaker. I'm calling you. I picked you. I picked the right guy. I'm God. I know better. I'm calling you. Go and tell Pharaoh. But he's not going to let my people go. Moses, in his obedience, obeys God. And the promise in his calling was that God said, it's not going to be Moses. It's not going to be Aaron. It's not going to be Israelite warriors. It's not going to be Pharaoh breaking down. It's not going to be economic collapse of the Egyptian empire. It's not going to be any of those things that sets you free. It's going to be my mighty hand that sets you free. God uses that phrase several times in Exodus. It will be my mighty hand that sets you free. He set his children free from slavery with his mighty hand. For us, as his children, we need to receive his mighty hand. His hand that offers forgiveness and salvation. His hand that offers blessing. His hand that offers uh, supplication and, 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 and sustenance. His hand that offers rebuke and discipline and teaching and training and correction. His hand that offers discipline because he is a perfect heavenly father. So this was revolutionary to me. We're going to get to these, uh, this last segment here. We're going to close here in a minute. Uh, and, and we're going to get to why does this matter? The questions that I asked at the beginning was, who are the children of God? What are the children of God? Why does that matter? And I, before I say this, I just want to say this, this radically changed the way that I view God. A lot of times when we say maybe two or three things, it's something like radically transformed your life, something that radically transformed the way that you view God. Like usually it's like years past. This happened like three weeks ago. This is so good, you guys. I had this image of, of a dad giving his child a bath, like two years old. And, and I just thought of this, this image, just like this, this really intimate moment with, with a father and a child. And I was just playing this through in my head. And, and in this kind of daydream, I guess you can call it, um, this kid is just like super happy and out of nowhere just like throws the biggest fit, screaming, because he gave him the wrong duck probably, and, and just starts screaming Beat red face, just freaking out. Sometimes kids just have meltdowns. 
And I was just thinking about the dad just kind of like sitting on the side of the tub, kid just, just losing it for no reason. And the dad just looking down at the child, thinking through all the worries and all the responsibilities of being a father, all the things that a dad needs to be worrying about, all the things that, that the provider is thinking about, thinking about making sure that there's enough food on the table, enough money coming in, making sure, praying, praying for the child and, and holding down a home and all these things that a father has to do and looking down at the child and just kind of just smiling and shaking his head going, you have no idea. You just have no idea, my son. And I feel like that's how God is, right? Because the scripture in 2 Corinthians four sixteen and 17 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Now, for Paul to say this is pretty radical. Because here's a guy that's been imprisoned several times. Beaten to the point where they thought he was dead. His friends have been beaten, taken away, some of them killed. In 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm going without sleep. I'm going without food. I'm exposed out to nature. There's a point where I thought I just wanted to die because it was so hard. Just a couple chapters earlier, Paul says all this. He said, this all happened so that we would become dependent on God. So here's a guy who's getting beaten, thrown in jail, just getting just tarnished, just his life, just feeling like it's slipping away from him. And he says these light, momentary troubles, these light, momentary afflictions. He says, in comparison to what we will receive in heaven, all this stuff, the difficult, painful, when every second feels like an hour. All that pain and hurt, it's light and momentary. It's like the kid in the tub throwing a fit for no reason. And God, the dad, is just looking down just like, you don't even know. It's this aspect of seeing God as our sole caregiver, our sole provider, our sole father. That if we are children just throwing a fit, over legitimate things. And again, I'm not downplaying any scenario, any circumstance. But Paul, it's like, in comparison to what we will receive, light. It's momentary. So that first point in why this is important to be, to be called children of God is that because we know our dad will provide, we need not worry. Right? We need not worry. We don't need to worry. We can look at the grass. We can look at the birds. We can, we can look at his creation and know that if God's going to take care of that stuff, he's going to take care of us. So because we know that our dad will provide, we need not worry. Second, because we know our dad will discipline, we need not complain. Parents in the room, raise your hand one more time. How many of y'all just love it when your kids complain? Just love to start your morning with a nice hot cup of complaint, right? The best. How was school today? It sucked. <laughs> Don't you just love hearing that? <laughs> I have definitely been uh, the vocalizer of several complaints in my life as a child. I, th- I think that this is something that... Oh, see, the Bible tells us that we should do everything without grumbling or complaining. Just like false humility 
is actually a sin. If we were to say, you know, oh, you did such a good job on that painting. Ah, well, I could do better. You're such a compassionate person. Ah, well, you know, downplay it. God made you that way. Give glory to him. Anytime that you put yourself down, you're putting down his creation. Don't do that. I feel like the same truth is the same that when we complain, we're like, yeah, it's not good enough. Yeah, I mean, this is good, but uh, you could have done better, God. I, I feel like it might be a sin to complain. And this is hard. And it hands up. And you guys just get through this week already. Uh, the week, according to the calendar, is about 12 hours old. Any of you guys uh, not complained so far this week? I think I've complained just by the way that I groaned getting out of bed this morning. Uh, I can't get through a day without complaining. And this is a hard thing. But the truth is that because we know that our dad will discipline, we need not complain. When we endure the troubles of this life and, oh yeah, they're going to come, they are promised in Scripture that they're going to come. Not just in here, but Jesus said that you will be persecuted for your faith. You absolutely will. Jesus promised it. So when you go through it, the beautiful thing is that we don't have to complain. That we can be an example to people all around us. Because here's what I know. This life is hard, dude. <laughs> and everyone around us is testifying to that. You go to, you go to work. Someone's going to be complaining about how hard the economy is or how hard the family life is or how hard whatever. You go to school. You go on the street. Anywhere you go, there's going to be someone complaining about their life. What would be an incredible testimony to God is if you came into that situation, that conversation, and you just spoke life into it. You're just like, yeah, dude, I know, man. I've been there too. And you can speak into that. That's what we have the opportunity to do as Christians, as children of God, that we get to not complain when it gets hard. Finally, because we know our dad is faithful, we can be faithful. Because our dad is faithful, we can be faithful. We can't be perfect, but we can be faithful. Think of someone in your life that's been faithful, someone who's just come through when they said they were going to come through. That's been there for you. Isn't that a person that means a lot to you? Isn't that someone who, who has a special place in your heart? That people who are faithful, they just stand out. God is faithful. It says that, that we need to have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. We need to be like Christ. We need to be faithful. Now, are these things hard? Yes. Absolutely. But I want to leave you with this, that what's hard and difficult for mankind is the very nature of God. What is difficult for us is the very nature of God. It's real hard to be perfect, isn't it? Yeah. It's really hard to be disciplined, isn't it? To have integrity, to safeguard your word. It's hard to do that, isn't it? That's the nature of God, to be perfect. And if you have received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit, that's in you. You have the ability. You have the ability to get through life without complaining. You have the ability to shine like a light in the dark place. You have an ability to stand out like Abraham's descendants, to stand out when all around them is evil. We have the ability to stand out as God's little children. Dependent, trusting, we can be like that. I want to close with this thought. Um, 
I've seen a lot of posts on like Instagram and, and stuff. It's football season right now, and um, a lot of posts of you know dads like saying like boys scored the touchdown, and there's just a sense of pride that wells up in you, huh? Like that's my boy, like yeah, that's my girl, yeah. I feel like God does that. I feel like God absolutely has that. Last week, Jeff spoke on those who will receive the white robes in heaven. I feel like that's God saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. And how will we know that that's God saying, that's my boy? That's my girl? Is when God says this, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's God saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. He treats us as his children. So as children of God, we can live this life fully trusting that God is a good, good father. That as we seek him, as we follow him, the return on that will be everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that that in this life, though we are promised trouble, we are also promised freedom. We are promised endurance. That we are in, we are promised discipline and rebuke and correction. We are promised to be taught, to be equipped, to be brought up, to be sent out. God, will you just give us the strength, God, to be your people? Give us humility to be small children. It's hard, God, to to reduce ourselves to little children. It's it's something that doesn't come natural. Naturally, we want to we want to be puffed up in our pride and our accomplishments and the things that we're able to do. Because part of that is 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 thanking you for for what we're able to do in this this body. But part of that is just our own selfishness. And so, God, give us humility. Make us like children dependent, trusting in you. God, we know that you are good. Father, if there's anyone in the room that's just struggling with this aspect of of having a perfect father, maybe they didn't have a, a good father growing up, they didn't know their father. God, will you just show yourself to them as a true, perfect, heavenly father, as you are to us all. God, we give you praise for who you say that you are and who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen.